The gospel reading this morning is from Mark 7. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Mark tells us that Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret seems to be a, a theme that is developing in Mark. And Jesus just, uh, he can't really catch a break. Everywhere he goes, there are more people who want him, more people that need him and need his attention. He's tried to uh, pull away and rest for a while now. And even going so far this time as Tyre, which is a long way away from uh, the narrative that we've been reading so far, where it's taken place, and people always find him. He's probably the worst hide-and-seek player ever. And that woman who knocked on his door, did he just call her a dog? That is not the Jesus that I learned about in Sunday school. What is going on in this passage? Well, the passage contains two stories, and both uh, though we're focusing on the first one, both are about healings. Both are about 
pagans bumping up to the boundaries of the kingdom of God and how Jesus chooses to arbitrate those boundaries. Now, these stories are at the center of a larger section in Mark's gospel where he is celebrating the expansiveness of the gospel. That is, the grace of Jesus is for Jew and Gentile. That's the purpose as we've read about these boat trips of going to the other side. They're going to take the gospel to the Gentile side. And Mark has been trying to make that abundantly clear. And we saw the, the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? We saw the overflow of God's goodness in feeding 5,000 people, 5,000 males, likely much uh, a larger number, in Jewish territory with 12 baskets of leftovers. But in chapter 8, we're going to see a very similar story where Jesus feeds 4,000, this time in Gentile territory, this time having seven baskets of leftovers. Now, last week, we read how Jesus set about undermining sort of the protective cultural and religious fence that the Pharisees had constructed around faithful Israel to set them apart from these very Gentiles. And Jesus says in that context that it's not, in fact, what goes into a body. And when you read body here, think of a community, not an individual body. Jesus says it's not, in fact, what goes into a body that corrupts it, but that which comes from inside. Or we could say it perhaps another way, that spiritual integrity must arise from inward transformation. It cannot be scripted by community rules or regulations. And in declaring these food laws invalid, or at least powerless, he was removing one of the primary barricades to including the Gentiles in the new community. They can be holy without the religious superstructure that has kind of guarded the holiness of Israel for hundreds of years. And Jesus is undermining that infrastructure, not as unimportant or as sinful in and of itself, but just powerless to do what the Jews at that time were counting on it to do, to inculcate holiness into the community. But this is what's interesting, because here in the passage that Twyla read, Jesus seems, at least at first, to resurrect those same kind of discriminatory religious and ethnic borders. In fact, he does this in a very shocking way that softened, softened just a bit when we understand the context. But nevertheless, Mark presents Jesus as initially abiding by the very same exclusionary cultural rules that he's so far been intent on undermining. And he does so with what most people believe to be an ethnic slur. Let the children first be fed, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs being the operative word here, not your you know, comfy, uh, soft, polite little house pet, but these dirty, mangy scavenger dogs that made their way around Galilee. Dogs was how Israel thought of Gentiles in general, but particularly Syrian, which was part of Canaan. 
the ancient enemies of the Israelites. Now, I read a number of commentaries on this, and some would argue that Jesus's initial response is uttered with kind of a playful gleam in his eye. This woman knows what Jews think of Gentiles and of her ethnicity in particular. The Syrians were ancient enemies. And so Jesus is saying this perhaps with a a bit of a wink and a nod. They're, They're participating in kind of an inside joke. And Jesus is saying uh, with the gleam in his eye, why would you come to me for healing? You know how my kind thinks of your kind. Well, that interpretation is certainly possible. And if we were really motivated to maintain a very tidy Christology where Jesus's divinity is kind of walled off and guarded from his humanity, this would be a very attractive way to go, an attractive interpretation, because it files off the sort of rough edges of this passage. But Mark's not interested here in guarding systematic theology categories. He leaves this rather unflattering picture of Jesus in. And it's not just that he calls her and her people dogs, but he seems to grant that his calling does in fact include Gentiles only after losing this debate, a debate that he's having with a pagan woman. Jesus was fully divine, but yes, Jesus was also fully human. And we don't need, we can't lose sight of that. Jesus did get annoyed. He got annoyed with his disciples quite often. He got tired. He got hungry. He got irritated. He wasn't unfailingly nice to people. Pete Sommerfeld, one of our deacons, recently gave me a book that's a meditation on the the Gospel of Mark. And the title is a subversion of our tidy, heartwarming Christmas idea of Jesus, that he was meek and mild. And the author names uh, his book, Jesus Mean and Wild. Jesus was likely exhausted. People were always clamoring for his time and attention his closest pupils, who he should be able to depend upon, weren't really helping with this. And now he's traveled all the way to Tyre to get away, and this very assertive, very persistent woman comes knocking on the door of the private house that he's staying in. Now, culturally speaking, this would have been shocking behavior, shameful behavior, as a matter of fact, on the part of this woman coming to solicit a favor from a Jewish male who is staying in someone else's house. It's an affront, actually, to the honor status of Jesus or of any religious male. No woman, pagan or otherwise, in that culture would have dared to approach an unknown male Jew and wouldn't have dared to invade his privacy at someone else's home for what is essentially a favor, a very important favor, but a favor nonetheless. So this snub by Jesus is not only understandable, it was expected. She not only knocks on the door, 
but she won't be turned away. And she actually enters into a debate with Jesus. And unlike almost everyone else in the Gospels, she enters into a debate with Jesus and she wins. What do you do when you hear a knock on your door? At our house, it's usually someone that is uh, selling something or signing someone, signing people up for some kind of initiative or voting drive, or it's a package delivery. And by, by the time you answer the door, they're already gone. Or it's one of our kids' friends who are knocking on the door. The good thing about all of those things is I don't have to get up for any of them. So nine out of 10 times that someone knocks on the door, I can just keep doing whatever supremely important thing I'm already doing and ignore the door. But if someone keeps knocking, by then our dogs are going berserk and I eventually have to drop whatever supremely important thing it is I'm doing and walk all the way to the front door. And so sometimes I arrive and I'm not in the most cheerful mood. Well, we don't know how this lady found Jesus or how long she knocked, but Jesus comes to the door and he's likely put out. He's likely annoyed. And he tries to get rid of her initially by setting the perimeter of his ministry in a way that actually excludes her. He has come, he says, to the children, which means Israel. Mark says first to the children, but Matthew, as he tells this story, he adds something even more directly. And he says that Jesus told this woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But this woman has a different, different idea. And for a moment, she seems to out Jesus, Jesus. She seems to have a much more inclusive, a much more generous idea of the kingdom than the king himself has. The chutzpah of this woman is remarkable. It's remarkable even in our day, but it would be utterly shameful and without parallel in the ancient time when Jesus lives, lived. She is saying, but Jesus, come now, even if the children are fed first, the dogs under the table still get scraps from the children. Listen in on what she's saying here and what she is implying, because yes, she is debating Jesus, but she gets something about the gospel that we all need to get. Remember when Jesus chastised the male disciples on the boat for not understanding the miracle of the loaves? In other words, they weren't understanding what was going on with Jesus walking on water because they didn't understand the abundance of the gospel that they had just seen demonstrated in the feeding of 5,000. They didn't get it. This woman gets it. She recognizes somehow about the extraordinary abundance of what Jesus is up to. What she is saying is that even if the children eat all they want, there's still more left over. That no table can contain all of the food that Jesus brings. At least in the confines of this small piece of the narrative, it seems like she understands the abundance of Jesus' food more than Jesus does at least as Mark is telling it currently. 
And what's more, she's not even asking for a seat at the main table. She's not saying Gentiles need to be at the table just like your fellow Jews. She's content that even a crumb or two will do just fine, even though what she's asking for is healing for her daughter. Even the crumbs from your table, Jesus, can bring new life. She seems to understand, to sense something about the abundance and the potency of Jesus' work. And in a sense that I must say personally still feels a bit weird to me, she convinces Jesus of this. That in some way, Jesus is coming to understand his calling in a new way by interacting with someone else who is, by the way, a pagan and a woman. This is not the Jesus that I learned about in Sunday school. Now, maybe Mark is telling things out of order here. There is a certain truth to the fact that Jesus's understanding of his own calling has some growth throughout each of the Gospels, but this seems like a little bit out of order because of the way that Jesus has been talking about the abundance of the kingdom and the calling he's in, he's been taking his disciples to the other side to minister to Gentiles before this. So maybe Mark's telling things a little bit out of order because Jesus does seem to have been quite clear-headed about the extent of his mission. He may come first to the Jews, but the gospel includes Gentiles as well. And perhaps this is the main point of Jesus' initial response, that he's sort of testing this woman a little bit. But Mark is at least dangling the idea in front of us that a woman, an unclean pagan Gentile, believes that she has the right to approach Jesus and demand that he live up to his own calling, which includes bringing grace to her and her daughter. Even though it seems completely unlikely that way out in Tyre, that she's heard Jesus teach this before. She seems to inexplicably understand better than many Jews, including Jesus's own tribe, his disciples, that the Jews and the Gentiles are in the very same boat as it concerns God, that both are equally in need of grace, that both need God to break down the wall of separation and to bring healing into all of his broken world, not just part of it. That she presumes to argue the point deepens the offense. No woman would have done this were they not compelled by something supernatural that overrode all of the cultural inhibitions in this context. And then even stranger, Jesus concedes her point, which is remarkable because you usually don't go toe-to-toe with Jesus in a debate and win. Now, for those of us who grew up in more evangelical church context, this this should blow our minds at least a little bit because here's Jesus, the divine sovereign, the savior of the world, learning from or at least allowing himself to be corrected by a pagan woman. And when we see this, 
when we think back over what we've read so far in Mark, what we see is not actually that much of an aberration. But we see what is going on here, that Jesus is allowing a profound work of status equalization. What Mark has been describing to us about the nature of the gospel all along, that it brings people together, that it pushes people of different statuses together and puts them on the same plane. Here is a high-status male rabbi, a person now of great influence and of some privilege, and he's allowing himself to be bested by someone of low status, of low social influence, a dog. Jesus allows himself to be shamed. He's taking on the identity of the least in order to include this woman in the new community of the kingdom. And Judaism, which includes his family and his disciples, will have to take his lead and suffer the same indignity, the indignity of redefining its group boundaries to include as equals those whom they have regarded as lesser as enemies even, for centuries. As we face yet another national reckoning over race, I guess the question to us is, will we, will we marshal our arguments in order to maintain our privilege? Or will we allow ourselves to hear? Will we maybe allow ourselves to be bested by arguments that we hadn't considered before? Will we willingly assume the position of servant, of least, so that others can be lifted up? Will we participate in this great story of gospel status equalization? Can we do this in big ways, in social ways? Can we do this in everyday moments, everyday relational challenges where we have some form of power, where we exceed someone else, if only in our own minds, where we perceive them as less in some way? Will we marshal our arguments to keep the relationship unequal? Or will we, like Jesus, allow ourselves even to be bested Will we allow ourselves to be shamed? Will we allow ourselves to become less, just like our Savior Jesus? The story of Jesus' interaction with this woman isn't, at the end of the day, all that different from the story that Mark has been telling us all along, that Jesus comes not not to judge the world, but he comes to save it. And he comes to save the world by being conquered by it, by being shamed by it. He has marched out of Jerusalem, the holy city, the ideal city, the holy ideal, so that others, many being his enemies, so that they may be brought in. He is crucified so that others may live, others like you and like me. This story represents the divine reversal that is at the center of the story. The story 
that Mark has been telling us and these story that we are actually living in. And so let's reflect upon this, the divine reversal at the center of our story as we come to our time of confessing our faith and taking communion together. Let me pray for us and then we will confess our faith. Father God, I thank you for all of these dear people who make up the community of InTown. And I pray that we would be soft and tender and willing to learn, willing to think from other people's perspectives, especially the weak, especially the lost, especially those who are the least in terms of cultural power. I pray that we would step into their stories, that we would answer the door, that we would allow ourselves at times even to be shamed, to be bested, to not be persistently talking about and claiming our rights, but to give our rights up for the other. And I pray that we would do that as a church, that we would be a welcome place, uh, a welcoming place, a safe place for anyone who would come and stick their heads in, whether it's online or in our physical space as we eventually regather there. I pray that you would let in town be a place that understands the gospel and it is rooted to it at a very deep place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.